So I know this Friday is Valentine's Day. Yay. But you know what drives me crazy? The fact that I'm pretty sure Valentine's shit was up before Christmas even happened. Yeah, they really just put all the Valentines. It, it's Everything's been pink for like two months. I'm tired of it. Well, it's literally like, um, hello, we still have uh, Christmas, the end of Hanukkah, uh, New Year's, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which, you know, there's not decorations, but still, it's a holiday. There's so much before Valentine's Day, yet they're like, yeah, Hallmark, holidays, candy, chocolate, which is a candy. And I'm just like, stop, just stop. Well, and like, who is buying Valentine's chocolates for another person like a month before? They gonna be old, unless you're buying them for yourself (laughs) to just like eat at you know when you buy them which okay fair but which i'm gonna say honestly it is a fun time to try a lot of different kinds of chocolate like if you're like you know what i don't know if i like coconut and caramel and nougat you get one of those heart boxes you try them all and then you find out oh my god cherry inside of chocolate is very good nougat kind of tastes like a snickers I don't know. I feel the exact opposite. I think the, like, mystery chocolates in the box of hearts are the worst because you wind up being like, (laughs) ooh, what's this? Oh, it's an orange starburst covered in chocolate. That's gross. <laughs> or like, I know exactly what one you're talking about. <laughs> it's awful. And then you're like, ooh, what's this one? And it's like, oh, this is the darkest chocolate you've ever seen in your life. It's so bitter. It will take all of the moisture out of your entire body. And I'm like, hmm, cool. <laughs> So, I'm not a fan. You know what? Whatever. Just like we say every year, because, you know, why not? That chocolate will go on sale Saturday the 15th. So, go buy it at 50% off. If you wait till the next day, it might be 75% off. So. True. <laughs> but, um, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And, you know. Treat yourself of- with the chocolate or don't. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, do it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, killers, murder, the stuff we talk about. All the things, all the things that go so well with Valentine's Day. Things you don't want for Valentine's Day. You know, I will say we definitely uh, missed an opportunity here with Topic. But... To do the St. Valentine's Day massacre? Or to just do, like, Valentine's Day killings? My God, I was not thinking the former. I was going more towards the latter, but... That's also could have, I could hear what you would have done. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. All right, Valentine's Day 2021, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You heard it right here. We will not remember in a year. That We won't remember in a week, but (laughs) Please remind us. If you are a constant (laughs) listener, um, let us know. Remind us in a year. Thank you. We will need it. um wow yeah but can we talk about how fucking long january was it was so long why it was like the monday of the year yes yes it is (laughs) it's Uh, too much it yeah but you know what january is over we're in the shortest month which doesn't feel like it but that's because we got an extra day this year oh yeah ugh leap days also by the way happy fourth birthday to those born on leap day i don't know how old, how many years are there in between leap years that's someone that's like 20 right that would be someone who's like 16 but okay leave me alone 
stop trying to do math for me. <laughs> You're faces... right. My apologies. <laughs> it's like Mama's text earlier today. I was like, okay. <laughs> Math word problems are the thing of my past. I hated them. And you were probably like, oh, let me see. You whip the pencil out behind your ear and you start writing it out. But I got the right answer. So it's You fine. did. I just, yeah. I mean, it. basically she texted us a, if a train leaves Cincinnati going <laughs> 35 miles an hour and another leaves Phoenix going 70 miles an hour. And I'm like, I, I don't, I, no, I, I'm out. It was literally worded just like a fucking word math problem. And I was like, I initially was about to text her and be like, no, like I'm not, I'm making dinner. I'm not playing this game. I was like, I just got home from work. I don't, uh, yes. (laughs) But uh, let's shift gears and I want to talk about Patreon for a hot sec. Do it. So if y'all haven't checked it out, check out patreon we have murder mini episodes we have different tiers of support that get you awesome things like directing an episode we have a new level where i guess it's not new anymore but we have a level where i uh, get a free piece of merch and um but yeah check it out our patreon community they are amazing and awesome and if you haven't checked out patreon you should do so And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. We're also on Spotify. You can follow us there. We're on Podbean, Google Play, all the things, um, Android stuff. There are tons of apps on Android for podcasts, but we're there. So subscribe. So I lost last week. Yes. So I got to pick this topic. So I guess it's on me that I didn't pick St. Valentine's Day Massacre. (laughs) it's i will put all the blame on you i am okay with that but i did pick one that you know scary for valentine's day sure we've talked about serial killers a couple of times on this podcast Just a few. like maybe but you know what we haven't done we haven't specifically talked about serial killers that are local to where we live and so for this episode I told Tyler to pick a local serial killer from Austin, and I picked one from Dallas, and doing this research was extra levels of creepy because of that. Yeah. And so it's also one of those things that it kind of brings it home, literally, and it's a reminder that shit can happen anywhere, even where you are, so, like, watch your back, because goddamn. And... You can watch your back and it could still happen. So I guess I'm just saying we're all going to get murdered, but hope you enjoy this episode. Bye. <laughs> wow. I uh, love it. <laughs> no, I mean, sorry. I didn't mean to go like kind of dark there, but it literally, you just, you never know when and where these types of things could happen. Uh, absolutely. And I think one of the scariest things about reading uh, killers or crime and shit that happens in a place um, like in your town or whatever is you're familiar with the locations. They'll be like, yeah. this attack happened on this street corner. And you're like, oh my god, I know exactly where that is. And that's just, it's an extra level of like, oh fuck. Yes, that's exactly what it's an extra level of. When you can actually visualize these occurrences taking place because you know that area, it's really, again, like it, it just, it's creepy. It's scary. It adds that level of horror that we don't normally have to face when we're talking about crimes. Um, listeners, 
y'all, for some of y'all who live in areas that we've talked about, I mean, shit, any of y'all in Chicago, there's a lot of stuff that happens <laughs> there. Pretty sure you're able to um, picture these things with more vivid visualizations than we are because we don't live there. So this time, local serial killers. Local serial killers. And for this one, we are definitely going to need wine. And I'm glad I'm going second with the wine because I have a red and I think I've left it in the fridge now for about three hours. So it might be a little cold. But Brittany, tell me about the wine you're drinking while mine comes back up to room temp. Oh my god, it's going to take longer than I what I have to tell you for your wine to get up to room temp, but okay. Yeah, I know. So I picked the 2018 Miguel Flores Malbec from La Rioja, Argentina. And this one is a little bit not like the normal wines that I get because it was 20 to a bottle. So Whoa. it's, yeah, I know. But you also have to see like how beautiful this is and know that I had to just buy it. Yeah, no, it's a gorgeous bottle. It's gorgeous. It's got like flowers, leaves kind of stuff. But one thing that's really interesting about this Malbec is it's not in the Mendoza region of Argentina that we're used to hearing about. So this one is from the La Rioja. And it's an area that's a little bit under the radar. But it's actually Argentina's oldest wine producing region where some of the Spanish missionaries planted grapes during the middle years of the 16th century. And so it's it's lesser known, but there's a reason for that. A lot of it is because it's like a really grueling seven hour drive from Mendoza. So not a lot of people go out that way, but it is the third most expansive grape growing region in the country. Um, and it only trails Mendoza and San Juan. So those are the two other top mm-hmm. regions or expansive regions. But this wine in particular, it has bold flavors and a very supple texture. It's got some ripe fruit characteristics of plum, blackberry, and mulberry with a little bit of a hint of mocha. And it's got a very smooth palate and balanced tannins with a very long and elegant finish And when it comes to what it pairs best with as far as food, it's really good with a nice prime rib, uh, a leg of lamb with like some rosemary seasoning, Mm. caramelized root veggies, and creamy polenta. I'm really excited to try this wine. Um, I wish I had some polenta because that sounds really good. I'm not going to lie. But I'm really looking forward to this one. I am pretty sure I've only ever had a Malbec from the Mendoza region in Argentina. I don't know if I know Malbec well enough to tell you the differences, but I'm going to try. Okay. And it is just a regular cork, so I'm going to go ahead and get into this. My corkscrew actually went in pretty easily. You know how I've I've been having some trouble with this one? It's been like super squeaky. Yeah. I was afraid it was going to rip in it, and I was going to be like, no, we've got the little bit of a cork that's left in the bottle, but we're good. Yay. Ooh, it smells good. Let's see what this baby looks like. Ooh. That is a pretty wine. It's a very, like, ruby, garnet, kind of purpley color. Not too dark. Oh, God, it smells amazing. All right. What wine did you pick for today's episode? So, funny enough, I'm also drinking a Malbec from Argentina. No, oh my, okay. This is a moment to remember, because 
You know how surprised I am that we've never done this? Oh my god, no, we haven't. Also, I just realized maybe this is another, like, missed opportunity because we're both doing the same wine from the same country and we're going to get to compare them and how they're so different. So Ooh. we're we're going to capture this opportunity right now and we're going to tell you. We're but, doing it. <laughs> so, okay, tell me about your Malbec. This is hilarious. So mine is the 2019 Santa Julia Malbec from Mendoza, Argentina. So... Mine is from Mendoza. And I got this one at Whole Foods, actually, and it was like $11.10.99. And from what I saw looking it up, that's about the general price at most places you can find it. The bottle is described as a purple-red wine that's packed with ripe fruit flavors of plum, cherry, and strawberry. It has hints of chocolate with a spicy finish and pairs very well with steaks, burgers, and pastas with red sauce. Do you think so, it's good with bacon cheeseburgers? I'm <laughs> I'm sure it is, like apparently everything is. Um, but like I usually do, I went and found some reviews from people who actually drank the wine and aren't, you know, the winemakers trying to sell it. And... One person described it as very young, because it's a 2019 vintage that they had in 2019. So it's not oh, too, that too... is young. Whoa. I, I missed you saying it was 2019. Yeah, it's a it's a baby wine. But it was... Um, they said it wasn't too, too developed yet, but it was very dark fruit driven. And it had these nuances of toffee and vanilla with a light cedarwood finish. And I was like, ooh, that yes. sounds good. Ooh. And the other review I found said that it was very dark in color, deep in flavor with a f- smooth finish. So I'm like, ooh, it's deep but not developed. What does that mean? Um, they tasted dark chocolate, red berries, and vanilla, and said it was great for the price. So I'm excited for this one. I always forget how much I like Malbecs. And this one is a screw cap, so um, I'm just going to get it open, just like that. Um, Let's see how this one looks. Oh, a modest pour from your side. Listen, yes. Oh, it smells wonderful. Okay. I'm thirsty. Let's cheers. I am too. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Um, I'm very happy right now. This wine definitely, it didn't say I was going to taste any like earthy notes, but I feel like I'm getting some wood and like a little bit of a cedar, like the way cedar makes it like super smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely smooth very balanced tannins the fruit i still need it to breathe a little bit more so i can taste those fruits but i'm getting a bit of like that blackberry um it's not super sweet definitely toned down on the sweetness and literally i i know this is gonna sound weird but like rosemary would pair so well with this like a nice piece of like rosemary bread from macaroni grill you know Mm. what i'm talking about Yes, (laughs) their bread's so good. Oh my god, yeah, mine is really good. It's a little cold, so the flavors are a little bit dulled down right now, and it needs to breathe a little more. 
but it smells a lot fruitier than it tastes. And I like yours, mine has that cedar wood finish that makes it very smooth, very um almost the texture of like a uh it, this is not going to land, but like a furniture polish or like a, a like a wood stain of furniture polish yeah you know that's very smooth that's how my mouth is feeling not like i just opened um, my mouth and pledged away oh god don't do that don't um i will say this one's definitely very deep i'm getting a lot of like lingering long flavors i'm i'm loving this uh for me i would say definitely worth the 22 bucks that i paid for this nice yeah mine's definitely worth the 11 i mean it always is for them except well there are some that are not i can't, except can't when say it's always not. yeah you're not like never say never and never say always um <laughs> yeah. just just you know what don't don't go to the extremes um okay speaking of extremes i am about to go to them though oh god okay yeah it's murder time so tell me about your local serial killer so I know a lot of our listeners have heard of this killer. There are a lot of podcasts out there specifically dedicated to this. There's shows like ID, Oxygen, all the things. I did the Texas Eyeball Killer. And the sources I used, an article from Oxygen by Benjamin H. Smith, an article in New York Daily News by Mara Bobson, an article in Texas Monthly by Skip Hollinsworth called See No Evil, and then an episode of Forensic Files, uh, Season 15, Episode 2, also titled See No Evil. Um, Skip's totally in the episode. It was like this special hour-long episode of Forensic Files. Um, I recently went on a work trip, and I think I watched about 12 hours of Forensic Files, because it's like the only thing on that's worth watching. It's like, do I want to watch the news or an endless stream of Forensic Files on HLN? Obviously, I did not pick the news. Um, Fair. I got so many case ideas, though. It's crazy. So in case y'all didn't know, Forensic Files 2 is coming out, I think, on February 23rd. Um, So check that out, because Forensic Files is coming back. All new cases! I saw the commercial probably 150 times. So (laughs) I'm really excited. (laughs) Forensic Files is always, like, the go-to, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it is, like, always reliable, always there for you. It's not like the Netflix documentaries that you binge really quickly and then you're done and you're like, oh shit, I'm done. It's Forensic Files. Always new episodes. I mean, 15 seasons? I don't even know how many seasons there were, but a lot. Okay, enough of Forensic Files. Now to my case. Now to the eyeball killer. So on the morning of December 13th, 1990, so this wasn't as long ago as I thought it was. Um, I mean, I guess technically that's 30 years ago, but still, uh, yeah, I know I said it. It's 30 years ago. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> um, Dallas police found the body of 33-year-old sex worker Mary Lou Pratt dumped in a field in South Dallas, and she was wearing only a t-shirt. Her face and chest were bruised really badly um, and it seemed like the killer had beat her before firing a 44 caliber bullet into her brain um, in the back of her head killing her a resident in the neighborhood where her body was dumped saw the body and was just so horrified by what he saw that he rushed inside his home and he brought out a flowered bed sheet to cover the body which 
honestly is so respectful and like Mm -hmm. i know he just like added something to the crime scene but like she was nude from the waist down and it was just this horrible scene in the middle of like the road like right there by the side of the road anyone could see it and so i I just really appreciate this like act of kindness yeah mary was a very well-known sex worker in the neighborhood of oak cliff in dallas which is around south dallas it's kind of like southwest ish um Mm -hmm. beatings of workers from oak cliff they were unfortunately a normal occurrence but a murder wasn't and especially when it happened to someone that was very well known and liked such as mary since mary's killing was a dumped body case It's one of the most difficult murders to solve because she had obviously been killed in one location and then she was dumped somewhere else. There were no witnesses to either the killing or the dumping. There was no murder weapon. There was very little forensic evidence. No fingerprints were found and they had no apparent motive. I mean, considering the types of people who would visit the star motel, which is where Mary worked nightly she could have been shot by just about anyone. Dallas pathologist Elizabeth Peacock, she was the medical examiner looking over the body of Mary Pratt, and she was not prepared for what she saw when she opened the eyelids. Mary's eyeballs were gone, and they were removed with such precision that it looked like when the eyes were shut that her eyes were still in her head. Like, it it was done so well. Oh, that's horrifying. It is. I mean, the killer had to know how to slip a knife around the eyes, making sure not to injure the skin, then cutting the six major nerve muscles holding each eye into the socket, as well as the um, optical nerve, which is very tough, like a rope. They had to cut through all of that, and it still appeared as if her eyes were in her head when they were closed. So it's not even like a you know, a, I don't know, melon baller type situation where it's just like, oh, they were taken out. It's like surgical. Yeah. Police did not release any information about Mary Pratt's missing eyes. And because of that, her death at the time only warranted like a two paragraph story in the back section of the local newspapers. She was a sex worker that was killed. While yes, she was a known one and it was rare, It was something that the society just felt could be brushed aside. But as horrible as that is, um, what's even worse is that it couldn't be brushed aside because it was not the last one. About two months later, almost to the day, on the morning of February 10th, 1991, the body of 27-year-old sex worker Susan Beth Peterson was discovered on the exact same road that Pratt's body was found. She was found nearly nude, and she died from a shot to the head, but she had also been shot in the chest and in the stomach. So another Dallas pathologist had this same, like, very startling experience when she opened the eyes and found um, an empty space where her eyes should be. Susan's eyes had also been removed with such meticulous attention to detail and, like, surgical detail that this was clearly establishing a pattern. This was the same killer. So while Mary's body had been dumped at the side of the road on the outskirts of town and Peter's body was found or Peterson's body was found only about a mile away, also like in clear sight, 
This made the police speculate that the person who was responsible for these killings wanted people to see his handiwork, wanted the bodies to be easily discovered. He was not trying to hide them. He was not trying to hide um, that, you know, the eyes were removed. It was just like, oh, there you go. Look what I did. Police never released details of the murders, but because of the fact that these were happening in the sex worker community, news spread really quickly. And like, instead of a, a group of sex workers kind of walking away from the motels and going away when the police showed up, they were flocking to the police cars because they had information. Like they wanted to talk or they wanted to see if they were safe. Like they had questions. Just, it was a very different perspective. And, you know, police are oftentimes looking out for these sex workers. Not all of them, but we would like to think that the police are out there to protect. And so they did have bonds with a lot of these sex workers, and so they would talk to them. Um, and as news was spread, the killer was then dubbed the Dallas Ripper because there was a Jack the Ripper vibe that was going through because it was sex workers, and that was what Jack the Ripper did, um, also called the Dallas Slasher, because I guess someone wanted to use the word slasher. But what this killer is mostly known as is the eyeball killer. So the killer's third victim was found just about a month after the second on March 19th, 1991. Her body was completely nude and propped up against a tree on a residential street across the street from a grade school. Shirley Williams was 45 years old, and she had also been shot in the head. But the removal of her eyes was a lot sloppier than the previous victims. There were cuts around her eyes, which the others did not have that. And there was one, like, really large gash that actually had the very tip of an X-Acto blade still in the gash. But still... There were no witnesses, there were no, there was no murder weapon, no fingerprints, nothing. And to make this even more of a mystery, Shirley was a black woman and the killer had like jumped from murdering white women to murdering a black woman, which is something that um, wasn't as common to, to jump races. Mm-hmm. And... They'd also moved location. So the body was in a different place. It wasn't on that same stretch of road. So basically, just as police had feared, all the publicity that had gotten out, gotten out about this case, it sent the killer away from his original mark at the Star Motel where he was picking up the sex workers um, and the South Dallas dumping ground. And so now there was just no telling where he could go next because now he's bouncing around. So like I said, news of these mutilation murders were spreading around. And so tons of tips from people who were sure that they knew who committed the crimes were coming into the police office. And police began to actively interview sex workers in downtown Dallas about any suspicious incidents or violent customers that they may have encountered in the months around the murders. And so one thing about the Oak Cliff neighborhood, when Dallas was founded, it was a really nice, like, just outside of downtown, great neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then something happened, and it is now not a great neighborhood. Um, In the 90s, 
Dallas was one of the most dangerous cities in the country to live in. There were about, on average, two murders a day in the city of Dallas. And that's, that's really scary to think about because I knew Dallas had a bad rap in the past. I didn't realize it was that dangerous. And that wasn't everywhere, but there are still pockets of Dallas now that have high crime rates mm-hmm. and it's interesting to look at how the city has changed and Oak Cliff is a neighborhood in particular that I know is up up on the rise um it's being gentrified at the moment a lot of that is because Dallas has become pretty expensive to live in mm-hmm. and so when that happens you know the gentrification spreads from like the city center outwards this is what happens in like all big cities and so that's happening right now in Oak Cliff and So it's interesting because I hear about how bad of a place it is, how it's not a great neighborhood, but now there are pockets where it's getting a little bit nicer. But in the 90s is when it really wasn't, wasn't a great, great place. But even then, murders of sex workers was uncommon. Like that was their stomping ground, not somewhere that people were coming and killing them. So this was really just shaking the, the whole neighborhood and the whole city of Dallas, even with the high crime rate and the high murder rate that they already had. This was yeah. huge. Well, I mean that God, I I didn't realize two murders a day. Like again, I always, you know, we were growing up, it was like, oh, Dallas is dangerous. And then when I became an adult, I'm like, oh, I mean, I feel like a lot of people who don't live in cities are like, oh, the big city's dangerous. But damn, I did not realize that. And I would imagine the reason that Oak Cliff went from being, like, very prosperous, like, rich people, I mean, is probably white flight and redlining. Yeah. One of the women that the police interviewed was Veronica Rodriguez. She was 26 years old, and she said that she not only knew who the killer was, but that she had actually witnessed Mary Pratt's murder. Veronica claimed that she had been raped and nearly killed by a white man in South Dallas near the Mary Pratt crime scene. Rodriguez, though, was very well known to police because she was a repeat drug user, which had essentially fried her brain. And so she was, she lied a lot, she was constantly incoherent, and Police really believed that what she was telling them was just another one of her pity stories. She would often tell police similar tales so they would feel sorry for her and just like leave her alone. So she was just, she was so flaky that no one really believed this horror story that she was saying. And she said that Pratt had gone off with a stranger for a threesome and she joined in a South Dallas field. Rodriguez recalled that the man became very violent and hit her in the head with a gun, which knocked her out briefly, and that when she came to, she saw the man shoot Mary Pratt, and that's when she gets up and she bolts to the closest house, where the occupant of the home, who happened to be truck driver Axton Schindler, let her inside. So as it turns out, Schindler lives in Oak Cliff, not in South Dallas, where Mary's murder was thought to have happened. And Mm -hmm. so this is when police really get this possible Oak Cliff connection, because again, it was a dumped body, so murdered one place, dumped somewhere else. So now they're like, okay, 
if what Rodriguez is saying could possibly be true, we don't really believe her, but that means the murder took place in Oak Cliff and her body was dropped in South Dallas. So on the off chance that part of what Rodriguez is telling them is true, police decided to probe into Schindler's background, thinking that maybe in Rodriguez's really drug-induced state, she mistook the attacker for her savior. So like maybe when she's saying like she ran into this man's house for help, maybe it was actually the guy that was doing this. And so they're like, well, let's let's look into him. Okay, that's interesting. I'm glad they're investigating, even though they're like, oh, this might be another lie. I'm still glad they're like, you know what? But let's not take any chances because who knows? And this is a piece of evidence we can look into. It's interesting, though, that they're like, let's look at the guy whose house she ran into. Because on one hand, I'm like, oh, I mean, that seems pretty random. It's just like the closest house. But also, it's the closest house. So, you know, is that proximity a reason why this murder was happening here? What? So, okay. Well, and also, they had literally nothing to go off of. They had no evidence at this point. So... This inkling of a possibility of maybe there's something here, let's look into it. Yeah, that's just good police work. Like, they should look into it, even if they really aren't sure that what she's saying is has any ounce of truth. Yeah. So police didn't really find anything except one possible clue. But they didn't really know at the time that it could potentially be a clue. But the house where Schindler was living belonged to another man a guy named Charles Albright, who was 57 years old. And Albright was a former high school science teacher who owned a few pieces of property around Dallas. And two of his properties happened to be near the dumping grounds for the murdered sex workers. Oh, okay. So that was the only information they got out of Schindler. Then more evidence came forward from Brenda White, who was 37 years old. She was a 20-year veteran of the streets, and she said that one of her clients had tried to kill her, and she got away only because she carries a can of mace. Rodriguez and White both described this attacker as a middle-aged man with salt-and-pepper hair. Middle-aged white man, salt-and-pepper hair. So they're both probably describing the same man as as what police are deducing here. Yeah. So police started to look further into Charles Albright, the guy who owns the properties, because he fit this description. A deputy also recalled hearing Albright's name on a tip line, and it was from someone who said her friend, Mary Pratt, who was the first victim, had briefly dated a man who was obsessed with eyes and had a very large collection of exacto blades. Okay, well, that seems like a big-ass arrow pointing to him. Oh yeah, it is. And so, like, who the fuck is Charles Albright? Charles was born in Amarillo, Texas in 1933, and he was adopted when he was just a few weeks old by Fred and Del Albright. The couple lived in a middle-class suburb, and Fred was a grocer, and Del was a schoolteacher. Del was a very strict and smothering mom who (laughs) would do some pretty weird things, like sometimes dressing her son in girls' clothing or maybe tying him to his bed as punishment when he wouldn't go to sleep. So he had a very interesting upbringing. 
But he was always appreciative um, that his mother taught him manners. Um, Dell told him to speak politely about other people or not to say anything at all. She told him to respect women, especially when it came to sex. And she lectured him about the way his father acted really greedy with sex. And so Charles would see Fred in, in like their bedroom and his mom was in like her bra and panties and he would try to grab her. But Adele was not having any of that. And so she wanted to make sure Charles knew that that is not how you behave. And this is not how you should ever treat your girlfriends. So while she was extremely overproductive, it doesn't seem like some of her teachings were out of line. Yeah, I mean, she did some fucked up things, but also taught him some good things. And when Charles was 11 years old, his mom enrolled him in a taxidermy course after she caught him killing some small animals. Which, I'm just saying, McDonald triad right there. Mm, Don't kill animals. So... He practiced the crafts of dissecting, skinning, and stuffing on dead birds. And through this, he learned to pop an eye out of its socket without damaging the surrounding tissues. Um, However, you know, he would go to the taxidermy stores and he'd just look at these beautiful, like, glass eyes that he really wanted. But his mom was like, no, 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 no. Those are too expensive. You're going to use buttons instead so he would sew buttons onto the eyelids of these animals oh that's some Coraline shit that i am not okay with but i am also like okay you find your child killing small animals and then you're like you know what taxidermy school like i mean i can see how it's like oh let's turn their passion quote unquote into something like I guess normal, or I don't even want to say useful because it's taxidermy. But um, what? What if instead you were like, "Hey, don't kill animals." I mean, you know, because that works. You just tell someone "don't," and they're like, "Gotcha." Especially children. Yeah, they definitely listen. Um, well, the other thing that's weird about it is Dell got like really into it. Like she would help him by with his like by tools and like would study with them and, like, make sure he was doing things right. Like, she was really into this taxidermy, too. But other things that Adele did were just as equally weird. Like, when Charles was older, Dell insisted on chauffeuring him when he started dating. Like, even when he was in high school, she would chauffeur him in his date. And so, even though Charles, he performed really well in school, he started a trip down a criminal path when he was a teenager And when he was about 17 years old, he spent months in prison for theft and receiving stolen goods. But after his stint in jail, Charles attended Arkansas State Teachers College, where he studied anatomy, and his intention was to become a surgeon. But he still had this, like, class clown mentality. He was one of those people that was so smart that he just, like, wouldn't do his work, and he would goof off. And so he got kicked out of school. So he never graduated college, but he broke into, like, the office, stole the paperwork he needed, forged the signatures, like, I think even, like, stole a typewriter to make sure it was identical. And so he he forged all his paperwork to show he had a degree. Shit, he is smart, because that's 
I mean, that's some high-level forgery shit. It's not even like a, you know, ooh, I'm gonna find a template and just, like, print off a certificate. I mean, also, this was, like, the 70s or whatever, so they didn't have that. But this is... That's intense. It is. And it gets even more intense because he later got a job at a high school as a science teacher. Because remember I told you he was a former science teacher? Um, And he conned everyone into believing he had two master's degrees and was in the process of getting his PhD. Wow. And the students loved him. He was a fantastic teacher. A lot of the students were very attracted to him. He even got, like, love letters. Like, he was that teacher that everyone, like, loved. And so no one would have ever expected he was who he turned out to be. So White and Rodriguez picked Charles's picture out of a photo lineup, and police arrested him on March 22nd, 1991. So this is very shortly after the third murder. He had been, at the time, making his living as a carpenter, and he lived with his girlfriend, but he was also a known customer to many sex workers in the Dallas area. So police arrested him and then searched his home, and when they did this, they found a stash of X-Acto knives, a copy of Grey's Anatomy. Seasons 1 through 10? No, the actual Grey's Anatomy, the book, the one you have on your bookshelf. (laughs) True. Um, and at least a dozen books on true crime and serial killers. Oh my god, are we going to be pinned for murder? Because I definitely have Grey's Anatomy, a true crime podcast, and a lot of craft supplies. Um, I was literally about to say, so I'm basically describing you, except for the fact that uh, you hire a lot of sex workers. Unless you, you know, you do, and you don't have to share these things. But no. I, so I, like- I don't. But, um, <laughs> and... To be fair, I don't have exacto knives, but I do have a lot of hot glue guns, so there is that. So that's the exact thing. They didn't really find any strong links to the murders. What they did find was a very interesting link. And what became the key part of the case against him were some squirrel tail hairs. So police found the field where Williams was murdered, and they found her coat. They were able to find some of these squirrel hairs on the coat, and then they matched them to the strands that were found in the vacuum at Albright's house. So one thing that's very interesting, when you think about the detailed level investigators go to when they're, like, sweeping someone's home for evidence, they Mm -hmm. took his vacuum bag and had to sort through the vacuum and save every single fiber. And they ended up being able to match it to this one squirrel hair. Oh my God. If they come to my house, they're going to have a lot of cat litter. That's all that's in my vacuum. (laughs) And cat hair and dog hair and your hair. Okay. That all of that too because skippy sheds like a motherfucker but is this squirrel (laughs) hair like from a taxidermy squirrel he had at his house or like i I don't a squirrel was there when she was getting murdered and then also at the house like no so investigators believed that both the killer and the victim picked up these squirrel hairs at the scene of the crime so yeah, maybe there was a squirrel watching it go down, and instead of running for help, he threw tail feathers—not feathers, sorry—hairs at him. <laughs> um, no, 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 it's because they're out in a field, and yeah. they're in the same area. So basically, a squirrel 
um, I keep wanting to say tail feather, a squirrel um, hair, tail hair. It's a tail hair is kind of a hard thing to say. Uh, yeah. It was found on the victim's coat and then also in his vacuum, meaning like he traced it back into his apartment and then vacuumed his house and like just cleaning and, and there it was. Unfortunately, the murder weapon and the missing eyeballs were never located. Uh, I'm just uh, sorry. I just again realized that like when the investigators were at his house, they're probably expecting at any moment they're going to open a drawer and there's going to be eyes. And they're just going to find something. like eyeballs. Yeah. Oh my God. So Charles Albright's trial began in late November 1991. And it really did rely mostly on circumstantial evidence. And then also these like squirrel hairs. So prosecutors were ultimately forced to dismiss charges against Charles Albright for the Mary Pratt and Susan Peterson murders. However, he was found guilty of the murder of Shirley Williams and sentenced to life in prison. And so that was the one with the squirrel hairs. Okay. The other two, it was circumstantial evidence only. So there was nothing strong enough to, to really accuse him of those murders yeah i mean it's it's crazy because it's evidence that like if you read it in a book or saw it in a movie and it's like is this the killer you'd like almost roll your eyes of like well that's on the nose but in the actual legal system it's like circumstantial's not gonna be enough i'm honestly surprised the squirrel hair was enough and i can only think that nowadays the more we learn about like um, the way they analyze hair and stuff probably wouldn't be enough if this was a case happening in 2020. No, it, it probably wouldn't be enough because you can't accurately say this piece of hair came from the same animal unless you have a root. And that's not what this was like, cause I think the root has the DNA. So they're yeah. just comparing it. And so like literally, I mean, how many times have we talked about cases where they're like, oh, we found a pube and it turns out that's not a pube. It's like, oh, that's a dog hair. Yeah, because it's hair and it's just you're, I mean, yeah, it's still scientific and like you're looking for similarities, but it's not 100% certain. And it's just, there's also, I feel like a level of fear that played into him being convicted because, Yeah. yeah, there's not a ton against him. And when it comes to the circumstantial evidence, you were joking earlier, but you could find most of those things in your apartment and mine. And so it's like, okay, that's, that's such a definition of circumstantial evidence where it's like, yep, that just looks bad, but it doesn't mean it is. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a case of like knowing his background and the things I definitely think he did it. But if I was on that jury, granted, I think a lot of it is depending on how the lawyers presented it and all of that. But I, I don't know. If I could convict on that. I know, because there really is not a lot against him. Um, But like I said, he was sentenced to life in prison. And he is currently incarcerated at John Montford Psychiatric Unit unit in Lubbock, Texas. Um, And he's 86 years old and still maintains that he's innocent to this day. So, Wow. Like I said, there are a ton of podcasts articles books etc about this case that dive really deep into it there's a lot of information out there if you want to know more about this case but 
it's just very creepy. Like, because we, we always talk about serial killers and they're like tokens. And this was such an odd token, like eyeballs. Like, what the yeah. actual fuck are you doing with eyeballs? Is there I like mean, a jar of some like fluid and some eyeballs floating around somewhere? Because I don't know what you do with them. Yeah. And I wonder if it's one of those things of maybe it's not the um, eyeballs themselves, but it's the removing them that's the thing. So, you know, maybe he, after he removed them, he threw them away because it was the act of doing it. But damn. Good point. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm also realizing that maybe neither of us have ever been called for jury duty because we're not ideal jurors. I mean, I think in a perfect world we are because we're like, mm, let's question this. But I think the lawyers would be like, okay, no, go away. You know too much. You're going to ask too many questions. Um. Anyway, so that's my local serial killer. What one did you pick? So the case I chose is one that has probably one of the most horrifying names attached to it that um, I've ever done. And this case is uh, the Servant Girl Annihilator. Oh my god. I was kind of hoping you would do this one because I know I lived in Austin for years. I honestly don't know a ton about it, but people talk about it because it's like the one you talk about in Austin. Yeah, when I was doing my research, I was actually trying to um, avoid doing this one at first because I was like, well, let me, you know, I know that one. If you think serial killer in Austin, you think this one. But let me see what others there are. And I don't know if my research is failing me because that could be very valid. But literally all I could find were this one and then the Austin bomber that I already did a few 50 episodes ago i mean maybe that's good like maybe the last thing you want is to search where you live and just find like all these serial killers yeah i feel bad for people in chicago and los angeles because y'all did you mean the chicago tylenol murders did you mean john wayne gacy did you mean richard speck he was chicago right yeah, he uh, murdered all the nurses in Chicago. Not yeah. all of the nurses in Chicago, but he murdered at the nurse dorm in Chicago. A, a lot of nurses. Um, yeah, Chicago, scary place. Also exactly where I just was. So um, as far as I can sure. say, it wasn't scary. It was really fun. But I was also not thinking about all of the killings that we've talked about that happened there. Honestly, I think a big part of it is the size of the cities. I mean, Chicago... Um, in like the 1800s and stuff. And I think into like the early 1900s was um, the second largest city in the US right after New York. And I don't think it was until like the 30s, I want to say, that Los Angeles overtook it. Um, It might have been later. So, I mean, big cities, a lot of people. Yeah, that's going to be a bigger concentration of murders. And I left out the big King Daddy, H.H. H. Holmes, his fucking murder castle in Chicago. I always forget that was Chicago. but yeah, yeah, it's where they first had the World's Fair. And, like, people were coming and visiting. And he was like, stay at my hotel and never leave. Which, by the way, um, for our listeners who like to read books like I do. I'm, like, book-obsessed. I just bought Devil in the White City um, by Eric Larson. Mm. And it's a book that 
They're turning into a movie. Leonardo DiCaprio is H.H. Holmes. And it's been in the works for a while, but this book came out in 04. And I've had so many people recommend it. So listeners, I'm going to read it. And I will let you know what I think. If I remember, it may be a couple months down the road because I start like four bucks at the same time and I have a problem, but I love reading. Anyway, H.H. Holmes, Chicago, back to you, back to Austin. Yeah, that's, um, you read so much, but Devil in the White City is, I would say, at least from my experience, maybe one of, if not the most famous true crime book. I mean, up there with like Anne Rule writings. Yeah. Well, and what's awesome, I found it at Goodwill for a dollar. It was one or two dollars. Nice. But I think a big part going into this, why I wasn't really able to find a lot of serial killers in Austin is, one, I mean, I hope they aren't here. I hope they just avoid us. But, um, I mean, Chicago, as an example, it's always been a huge city. I mean, Chicago was where the world's very first skyscraper was built. Fun fact, 10 Floors, one of the first buildings to ever use steel in its construction. Not that we'd call a 10-floor building a skyscraper now, but I digress. Austin, on the other hand, it's only recently become a big city, which for those of y'all that aren't aware, it is now the 11th largest city in the U.S. and has either right under or at this point probably over, we'll see in the census this year, a million people. But even as recently as 1990, Austin was like, 400 and something thousand which that kind of yeah it's more than doubled in 30 years which is why traffic is awful but the people that i mean i work with that i'm friends with here that grew up here when they were growing up austin was yeah it's a city but it's it's not a huge one it's not it's not a major city in texas and now it is i mean i i think the um the population's a big reason why there's not a lot of serial killers here. But also, one thing I want to get on before I get into my case, because it's part of the background, is Austin's been a city for a while, as far as, like, Western American cities are considered, because they're all new. But Austin's been small for a while, even though it's been the capital of Texas for a long time. I mean, it was made the capital in 1839, when Texas was its own country, and then has been the capital since it joined the U.S., became a state. But it's always been not the main city. San Antonio's always been bigger, Houston, Dallas. I mean, there's there's been times that, like, Fort Worth has been twice the size of Austin. So it's... Not a uh, not the metropolitan city you might think, yeah. and my case takes place in the 1880s. So before I actually start my case, maybe I should talk about my sources. Yeah, t- make sure you didn't make this shit up. I just wrote this all from guessing. No, so the <laughs> sources I used um, an article from Texas Monthly by none other than Skip Hollinsworth, who. I mean, honestly, I don't think we could do this podcast without Skip's writing. I mean, not with how many Texas cases you cover. Listen, his writing is incredible and is one of the reasons why I do so many Texas cases, because I'll find his articles, read them, and I'm just so engrossed in the way he uses words, the story he tells. Skip, 
if you're listening, you're incredible. Besides Skip, I also used um, the Wikipedia page for the Sermit Girl Annihilator and an article from KVU, which is a local news station here in Austin, by Bob Garcia Buckaloo. Also, one last thing before I start. Can we talk for a second about how horrifying the word annihilator is? Yeah. Like, it's not the servant girl killer or servant girl slasher. It's the servant girl annihilator. And I th- I mean, I think the only times we've used annihilators when we did our family annihilators episode, because that's like the actual term for uh, that type of crime. But that word's horrifying and draws up some of the most terror-inducing images that you can imagine. It does, because annihilate, to me, is like, make completely disappear. Yeah, like, remove from existence. Yeah. It almost, okay, apologies, listeners, it's going to get a little bit graphic for a second, but it's almost like what happens if you're, unfortunately, like, a bomb goes off by you. You're essentially annihilated because you become, like, vapor. I mean, yeah, to me, annihilate is the difference between, like, being shot and being put in a wood chipper. Oh, Jesus. Um, Yeah, okay. I was thinking, oh, like a meat grinder. I don't know why that's, you said wood chipper. I thought meat grinder. We've fucking done cases on both. So, um, okay. Yeah. Annihilator. Dark AF. Yeah, with that, uh... With that darkness already in place, I'm going to jump in. So, starting in late 1884, America's very first serial killer was terrorizing what was then a small farming town of Austin, Texas. So, like I said, at this time, Austin, yes, it's the capital of Texas, but its population is only around 20,000. And so, it's not tiny, especially by 1880 standards, But it's definitely not like a city city at this point. But this is the time period where it started evolving from a town into a city and was very much modernizing itself and kind of building its path. So it had all of these kind of urban things opening up in it and was referred to at the time by some people as the Athens of the West, which I'm like, "Mm, I live here. I've never been to Athens. But I'm going to give that a hard no. Austin is, I don't know, the more conservative Portland of the South. I think that's amazing. And I agree. So, you know, during this time, the town is growing into a city. There's a lot of prosperity going on, but also murder. So in late 84, a black cook named Molly Smith, she was found laying in the snow next to the outhouse behind her employer's home with a gaping hole in her head. Oh, God. Just a few months later, Eliza Shelley, who cooked for the family of a former state legislator, she was discovered by her children on the floor of the room where they slept, and her head was nearly, like, in two from an axe blow. Oh, I had no idea this was an axe killing. Uh, it's a lot of weapons killing. Oh. So, three weeks after Shelley's death, another black servant, Irene Cross, she was attacked and murdered with a knife. And a reporter actually spoke with her as she was dying. The reporter said that she looked like she'd been scalped. So it wasn't just, like, 
a couple stabs. I mean, it's like a brutal knife attack. And then that September, a servant named Rebecca Ramey was knocked unconscious while she slept. And her 11-year-old daughter, Mary, was dragged into a backyard, what they call a wash house. So I'm thinking like laundry buckets and stuff. And she was stabbed through the ear with an iron rod. And then she was raped. Jesus. She was 11. One thing I do want to note here is um, this is the 1880s. And if you think slavery in America ended at the end of the Civil War, I'm sorry, but you're very wrong. Um, Even afterwards, like, technically, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery in Confederate states, states that were rebelling. So even though the actual formal practice of slavery ended, it still continued through Jim Crow laws and through people basically, you know, still being forced to work for wealthier white families for sometimes money, sometimes shitty shelter. But realistically, y'all, slavery did not end in the South after the Civil War. No, and it was like, I mean, exactly like you just said, it was still working for wealthier families or working to have a shelter. Or it's like, it was, you got something out of it and maybe it was a little bit more than it was when slavery like was a practice, but it was, it was still the same thing and that people were still abused. I mean, racism was still so fucking widespread. I mean, it is still widespread. So Yeah. And while Lincoln did amazing things with the Emancipation Proclamation, that didn't end it. It really didn't. No. Exactly. It definitely did not end it. So, It's like just because you write something down and pass it as law does not mean that people are going to follow it and act it out as you would hope they would. Like that's, God, unfortunately not human nature. You know, just because it's written down doesn't mean everyone's going to follow. I mean, yeah, it's horrifying, and at this time, I mean, these are the people he's targeting. Are, you know, he's the servant girl annihilator, and at the time, the servant girls, which, full disclosure, I have a big problem with the term servant girl. Um, I really went back and forth when researching this case and, you know, writing out my notes of like, okay, do I want to change it to cooks or like uh maids or housekeepers or something like that but i specifically chose not to one it is the uh name that this serial killer is known as but also i think it's important to note that like that was the reality at this time like you shouldn't have the image of like oh they clean the house got a wage you know like you know we think of housekeepers day it's very much a career they were treated as servants at this time. And so I think that um, that that's an important thing to note here. Yeah. So after Mary's murder came the murders of Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington. They were both sleeping in um, the like shack behind the house where Gracie's boss lived. The attacker entered the home They hit Orange on the skull with an axe and then carried Gracie out to a stable that was there on the property. And that was where she was found. And this is a quote from the Austin Daily Statesman, the newspaper there, um, here. But her head was almost beaten into a jelly, is what they wrote. So 
at this time, all of the victims had been black. So it looked like that's who this killer is targeting. So at this time, a lot of the white people in Austin were like, oh, this is tragic. But they're um, not really worried. They're not worried. They're like, well, that's not us. We're super fucking racist in the 1880s. That all changed on Christmas Eve. So that Christmas Eve, the body of Sue Hancock, uh, who was a white woman and a reporter at the time, described her as one of the most refined ladies in Austin, which means she was an upper class, wealthy white woman. Very different from the previous victims. You know, completely different profile. Her body was discovered by her husband in their backyard, and her head had been split open by an axe, and some kind of sharp, thin object was lodged in her brain. Oh my god. So I imagine like an ice pick or screwdriver, something like that kind of thing. Oh, I was going like shrap metal, some weird, I I don't know, but what, what you're saying makes more sense. Uh, I mean, I have no idea. It said sharp, thin object. So just about an hour after Sue's murder, Eula Phillips was found dead in the wealthiest neighborhood of the city. Her nude body was in an alley behind her father-in-law's home. And that she was actually living at her father-in-law's home with her husband, Jimmy Phillips Jr., and their young son. So... Jimmy, her husband, he was in bed and he was nearly unconscious because he had a severe gash on the back of his head. Their son was next to him. Thankfully, he was unharmed. But Eula, her body was found when they followed the trail of blood that started in the bedroom. And then they found her body in the alley. This serial killer is a lot more violent than I had realized. Like... Like I said at the beginning, I didn't know a lot about this case. People talk about it, but they more so talk about like, oh, a lot of people were killed, da 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 and like, that's it. But, oh my god, the amount of weapons and the amount of violence and like, brutality in this is insane. Oh yeah, I had no idea um, the amount of horrifying detail in this case, because yeah, I've heard about it. But I've heard about it in the way of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, in the 18-whatevers, there was a killer in Austin. And that's basically all I knew. Yeah. So Eula, her skull had been bashed in by an axe. And then these very heavy pieces of wood were placed on her arms, like, to keep her pinned down as she was attacked. And she'd also been raped. One of the things that, I mean, Brittany and I both just kind of touched on... You're probably wondering, why the fuck have I literally never heard of this? Like, the level of brutality, the fact that, you know, yeah, Austin was a smaller town at the time, but it's not today. Why don't I know about this? Well, one big reason is Jack the Ripper. Oh, my God. Jack the Ripper, um, he murdered his victims just about three years after the murders in Austin happened. You know... This kind of thing, this still happens. It's like, it. this is the news cycle. Something is, like, talked about, it's in the news, but then when something bigger happens, that overshadows everything. I didn't even think about the fact that Jack the Ripper was around the same time, but you're right. Like, that fucking case, the fact that it's still unsolved to this day, overshadows a lot of cases. 
And oh my god. I didn't even know Jack the Ripper was going to come into play, but it did. In both of ours. Yeah, when you said Jack the Ripper, I was like, hmm? Because, uh, little, uh, little spoiler, Jack the Ripper uh, comes into play. Oh, more? So, one of the reasons why, um, Jack the Ripper, I don't want to say, like, took the spotlight, but essentially that's what became the famous case while this didn't, is because he, in London, he disemboweled five different sex workers but there were also the letters that he wrote, or someone who was claiming to be him wrote, that mm-hmm. graphically described the murders. And that piece, along with how public these murders were, all of that kind of captivated the world. Nowadays, everyone knows Jack the Ripper. There's books and articles and movies and all these things about him. And it very much took the attention away from these murders here in Austin. So, zooming back into Austin, Sue and Eula's murders happened on Christmas Eve. So, when word spread of what they called the Christmas Eve Massacre, men raced from their homes and gathered on Congress Avenue, which is the main street in Austin. Like, it riled the city up. It brought everyone out. Mm -hmm. And, because it was two wealthy white women, the same quote-unquote passion was not seen earlier but when these two murders happened it sent the city into a complete panic the headline of the newspaper the next day christmas day was blood 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 last night's horrible butchery oh my god well and this is one of those things that i hate so much because it took white victims to actually raise alarm and this yeah. is something that pisses me off so much. It, it still mm-hmm. fucking happens today. It makes me so mad. I can't even go into that tangent right now because we all know that's so fucked up. But it's like that's what raises the alarm of like, oh shit, there's a serial killer on the loose. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, bitch, we knew there was, but you're just finally wanting to acknowledge it. Yeah. And on Christmas Day, the day after lines at gun stores in the city of Austin are out the door. People are buying guns to protect themselves. And there's even a Christmas Day meeting with more than 500 city leaders, business leaders. There's lawyers, doctors, clergymen. They're all coming together meeting to figure out how the fuck do we stop these murders from happening? Everything you just said is so Texas. I can't even. Uh, Yeah, this... This part could absolutely happen uh, tomorrow. Yeah. But some of their uh, suggestions and proposals, one was to light the entire city at night with lamps. You know, have it just like, not on fire. I saw Brittany's face. I know, to, sorry. Like, lamps. <laughs> I literally <laughs> just thought Just burn it all gonna... down. Rebuild Austin. <laughs> you said it'll light it on and my eyes got so big because you read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I saw your eyes get wide, and while that didn't happen in this case, check out the Cleveland Torso Killer if you want to see the police and government burn down half the city. Anywho, so lighting lamps, keeping everything lit, which I'm like, okay, that's a pretty good idea. Um, The governor at the time, John Ireland, who I'm like, I've never heard of you in my entire life, 
He suggested that fire alarms should be set off whenever the next attack occurred, so that would notify everyone who could hear them in the area to come out of their houses with their guns fully armed to hunt the killer down. My god, the 18- fucking terrifying. The 1880s were a very interesting time. Yeah, also I'm like, but what if there's a fire? You just but, um, like hope that doesn't happen, I guess. I guess. Do you come out with a water pail or a gun or both? <laughs> you have them next to one another. You just grab both of them because you don't really know how you're going to need to respond. So you're just prepared. Boy Scouts, always be prepared. Yeah, I mean, it's just be prepared, but yeah. Whatever. I added always because it felt necessary. Listen, as you said at the beginning of the episode, never say always and never say never. Fair. Boom. Um. So those are a couple of proposals. A former Confederate general, so this is going to be fun, uh, suggested that sentinels and police be stationed all around Austin to prevent anyone from leaving and that all of those that were in the city uh, were like very strictly questioned and interrogated where, you know, where they were on the nights of the murders. And, and I'm like, yes, obviously to stop the murders in Austin from happening build a dome no you know you know but like we have to look at this with the what we don't know because we weren't there but the 1880 lens we cannot look at this with the 2020 lens because 2020 lens this is fucking ridiculous 1880 this is what you do i guess it sounds dumb as fuck to me <laughs> Because we weren't alive in 1880. We have so many more things that are like strategies that police do for investigations now. Then it's like, don't let anyone leave the city. We have to interview everyone. We have to talk to all of them. Grab your pails of water. Grab your guns. Like, we're good to go. And because, you know, they didn't know. I'm not defending. I'm not defending their like stupid decisions. I'm just justifying them, I guess context no you're not justifying you're providing context i'm providing context this is fucking 1880 they didn't know what yeah. we know now this was a long time ago guys no and I, I mean i'm very glad that we're not in the 1880s because you're a woman and i'm very gay so life would suck for both of us we'd probably be dead at this point i'm 32 i mean me definitely yeah. you would have seven kids and look like you're 68 and I'd probably be dying in a year because people didn't live that long and my life has done what it should do. Ugh. Anywho, so they have this meeting. They're like, here's all these crazy plans we're going to do. But as it turns out, none of the plans were necessary because just as suddenly as these killings started, they stopped. So the Christmas Eve massacre was the last attack of the servant girl annihilator. In Austin. You know, just a little saying that. But still, the city is still in panic because, one, at this point, they don't know the attacks are over. No. And in the months after, they don't know if the killer's on a break. If there are victims that the city's not aware of, they don't know what the fuck's going on. And they have no idea who the killer could be. Well, and they're also like, is it a pause? Did they move somewhere? That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, 
Where'd they go? Did they go somewhere else? Because again, this is 1880, and even up into the 1970s, it was really hard to pinpoint a serial killer that bounced around states. Think of how difficult that would be in 1880. You would have no fucking clue. Well, I will say one thing to that, as difficult in 1880 as it would be to like track someone moving, I think it'd also be equally difficult to like go somewhere. I mean, you'd have to get in like a horse-drawn carriage. You'd have to organ trail that shit out of Austin. Well, and like, were there, were there phones yet? I don't remember. You can't just like call um, up another. Yeah, there were phones. Oh, okay. Yeah, the the Austin very newly. That was one of their like. Oh, we're cosmopolitan. Oh, we have phones. Sorry, Alexander Graham Bell. I forgot when the phone was invented. Um, because I carried it around in my goddamn pocket. But like, okay. So they could at least call somewhere, but would they even think to do something like that? This is, that's not how know. it worked, you know? And I mean, trains are around, but I mean, I don't even know in what capacity. Are trains like, oh, that's how people get to Dallas? Or is it still like, oh, yeah, we don't have a railroad in Texas yet. We take the horse. Also, don't you love how our history teachers right now are like, just really disappointed because they're like guys we spent so much time talking about the industrial revolution and all these things that happened and what like time frames of when the phone was when the railroad was when the Oregon trail was and now as adults were like what year was that i don't know yeah but then you also hear things that feel like they just don't make sense like when people are like, oh, the internet was invented in 1950. And I'm like, that feels wrong. And I know that is wrong. <laughs> I don't think it was 1950, but I think it was like the 70s. And I'm like, that feels like an absolute lie. Or when like the space shuttle went to the moon with less like computer power than the calculator in your hands. And I'm like, but how? You're like, that's actually not real. That can't happen. Like, honestly, you're a liar. And I'm 13 and in middle school, and so I know that is a fact. But, I mean, I don't know. Technology's crazy, but this was the, I think, middle of the Industrial Revolution. So, I, I don't know. They had phones. But I think also lit their lamps by fire. That's where we are. Regardless. That doesn't even make sense, though. They had phones, but electricity wasn't, like, the thing. I mean, maybe they had electricity, but <laughs> it didn't go to the lamps. It didn't go outside. It was just in the buildings. All right, I fair. fucking know. As we've already addressed, we weren't alive in the 1880s. Fair. There are so many, like, people right now that are just, like, they can't because we're... <laughs> We don't oh, know oh, these oh, things. All of, all of the listeners we have that were alive in the 1880s. Hi, hello. <laughs> thank you for being 140 years old minimum. I appreciate you listening. How are you alive? History's crazy. So, again, everyone's freaking out. No one knows they're over. Everyone's panicking. And the police are desperate. They're like... We have to keep the city of Austin from freaking the fuck out, and we gotta find who this killer is. So, obviously, they're like, uh, it was, uh, these, the husbands. So, they actually charged, uh, the husbands of two of the victims, but everyone in the city was like, no, that's not, these aren't isolated incidents, this is like a they're serial killer. They're related! Which, 
yeah, they didn't have the word for serial killer, but they were like, uh, this is the same person. They're connected. So the men were eventually freed. To this day, 135 or whatever years later, the identity of this killer is not known. We, we don't know? I thought we knew who this was. Uh, nope. There's theories, though. Oh theories abound that I'm going to hop into. All right, tell me who we think this was, because I don't know why I thought this was a solved case. Like, I didn't realize this was another of those mysterious unsolved cases from yesteryear. Oh, it's unsolved as fuck. So, some people pin it on a young man who died later in, like, a barroom shootout, because, again, that's the times we're living in. Right. It's the Wild West. And... In an Austin Statesman American, that is not the correct word. It's Austin American Statesman. It's there the newspaper is still around today. Um, in an article they wrote in 1887, the sheriff of the town wrote that this man had an unusual footprint. He had a missing toe. And it actually matched a footprint that was found at one of the murder scenes. So they're like, maybe it was this guy who died in a bar. And I'm like, first off, was he just barefoot at the murder scenes? I mean, maybe. that That's just weird. But, um, I mean, a person with a missing toe, I feel like that's not super common. But that's right. basically all the evidence they have. It's like, oh, this dude who was, you know, probably a bad dude. He was shot in a bar, you know, or he had a shootout in a bar, was missing a toe. This footprint near the murder was missing a toe. That's it. That's all they have on him. So others, though, others think that the servant girl annihilator, after these killings, moved to London and then became known as Jack the Ripper. Shut the fuck up. No, they didn't. That's what people say. So, and not only do people say that, there's some evidence that links this. So What? Yeah. So, in an article, the Austin American Statesman, in, like, 1888, they reported that a Malay cook, so a cook who, I assume, was from Malaysia, um, running on ocean vessels, so he worked on boats, was a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders, and this same person had worked at a hotel in Austin until 1885, when the murders stopped. And I'm going to read this uh, direct quote from the newspaper, which, how crazy, side note, how crazy is it that I can read a direct, uh, you know, paragraph that someone wrote in 1888? Uh, it's really crazy. Like, uh, the super, super, super sidebar, but the fact that we have, like, literature and things from the BCs and the ADs and all that shit, like, it, it's crazy. To think that you could read it, words someone wrote in a time that you can barely even imagine because it was so long ago. Yeah. I mean, it it blows my mind. So the reporter wrote, and the article snippet I have starts the middle of a sentence, so sorry. But, <clears throat> investigated the matter, calling on Mrs. Schmidt, who kept the Pearl House, near the foot of Congress Avenue, opposite the Union Depot, three years ago. Ah, of course. That makes total sense. That was me. That wasn't what they wrote. I'm adding commentary. 
It was ascertained that a Malay cook calling himself Maurice had been employed at the house in 1885, and that he left sometime in January 1886. Remember, the last murder happened Christmas Eve, 1885, and he left in January the next month. That was again me. Um, it will be remembered that the last of the series of Austin women murders was the killing of Mrs. Hancock and Mrs. Eula Phillips, the former occurring on Christmas Eve, 1885, just before the Malay departed, and that the series then ended. Guess I didn't need to add my commentary. It was the next line. <laughs> A strong presumption that the Malay was the murderer of the Austin women was created by the fact that all of them except two or three had resided in the immediate neighborhood of the Pearl House. So, let's break it down, y'all. This guy, which, it, first off, I don't, don't fucking call people by their country of origin or ethnicity. Like, I don't want to be called, well, the American. I'm like, hi, I do have a name. Like, right. you even said his name. He called himself Maurice. You can say Maurice. Just FYI. But basically what this is going into is that Maurice, he worked as a cook in the Pearl House, which was very close to a lot of the scenes of the murders. And then just basically within the month after the murders stopped, he bounced, and the murders ended. So that's the Austin connection. Yeah. Oh, wow. How it connects to Jack the Ripper. So in London, on August 13th, 1888, this sailor named George Dodge was interviewed by the Scotland Yard, which is the Great Britain's version of the FBI, essentially. Yeah. And he claimed that he met a Malay cook named Alaska... Which also possibly could have been Lascar, which is an old Malay word for sailor, which I feel like makes more sense. Most people aren't named Alaska, but okay. But he met this person at um, the Queen's Musical Hall in London and claimed that Alaska was, you know, 35 years old. He's 5'7", weighed 10 to 11 stone, or... 63 to 69 kilograms. Look, I'm in America. I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> I know a kilogram is like 2.2 pounds. So like, I don't know, basic math, like 130, <laughs> 140 pounds. I, I don't fucking know. <laughs> Y'all, can someone please tell us what a stone is? Because I don't know. <laughs> I want to say a stone is like 14 pounds. But like, I, I don't know. I I have English friends that'll be like, oh, I dieted and lost two stone in three months. And I'm like, I don't, good for you. I don't know what the fuck that means. Also, I guess they're like from the Midlands or the North. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, and like for me, it's just so interesting to think. And it's only because I think in pounds, but it's like something that could be equivalent to 14 pounds. I'm like, why would you do that math? Like one equals 14. That's too hard. <laughs> It's just random, which, speaking of, on that same note, what the fuck are we not metric? It's all by tens. It's so easy. The fuck does a pound mean? What's a foot? I know. It's so fucked up, but also, I really wish I could lose three stones, because that's a lot. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, that's called getting your leg cut off. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what a stone is. You Anyways, just said 14 so, pounds. Uh, that was a guess. Oh. Also, I'm like, if he's oh. 10 to 11 stone, I think that equals like 130, 140 pounds. So I'm like, I guess like 14 pounds. Wow, he's a little skinny bitch. He's 5'7", but also he's a skinny bitch. It's the 1880s. There's not enough <laughs> And we're American. Around. We're fat. I know. Okay, we're done with this conversation. I hate it. I know. Regardless, we're not in America in this case. We're in, back in London. So this dude, he's like, yo. I'm a sailor. Saw this dude. He's Malaysian. 35, 5'7". He weighs an amount. And sometimes he carries a double-edged knife. Oh, And he, he showed me this one time. And then George claimed that Alaska told him that he had been robbed by a woman of bad character. Fuck you. She probably didn't smile at you. Fuck you. Um, and she, that she robbed him apparently. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Listen, you know what? Would you have called a male robber a man of bad character? Maybe, yeah, probably. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> listen, he was robbed by a woman of bad character, and that unless he found the woman and recovered his money, he would murder and mutilate every Whitechapel woman he met. What the fuck? So. Yeah, so he is a The one monster. of bad character? <laughs> yeah, he's like, this person robbed me. You know what? If this friend of mine doesn't get my money back, I'm gonna fucking murder. Maybe don't. Like, maybe just don't do that. So, that's one connection. Another one, so similar to the murders that happened in Austin... All five of Jack the Ripper's victims followed a similar pattern of uh, women who were considered lower class that were within a smaller radius. They all had deep throat cuts, severe body mutilations, and had some organs removed, which were all very similar to the attacks that happened in Austin. Also, several witness testimonies of Possibly Jack the Ripper taking Elizabeth Stride right before she was found murdered. They provided a description of him, and they were described as a stout man about 5'6", wearing a black cutaway coat and dark trousers, and a cap like something a sailor would wear. So it's like, okay. And then a police constable claimed... The man had a dark complexion and a dark mustache, wearing a cutaway coat and dark trousers, and carrying a parcel wrapped in newspaper. I guess cutaway coats are a well-known thing then. I, I don't know what the fuck that is. A, a, a peacoat. I'm gonna say it's a peacoat. So, using some of these, let's be real, basic connections, I'm like, okay, you have a Malaysian man living in Austin who's... You know, fairly central to a lot of the murders, which, again, Austin's small. I feel yeah. like a lot of people were pretty central to the murders. Who then became a, a sailor or a cook on a sailboat. Not Maybe not a sailboat, maybe just a regular boat. Became a cook on a boat and went to London. And then people were like, Jack the Whipper, he wore a coat. Maybe his skin was dark. I'm like, that's not a lot of connections. You know, some of the... Um, what happened to the victims, I can definitely see connections there, but I'm still, I'm 
I'm skeptical. So back in Texas now, the reporter who wrote the uh, articles in the Statesman followed up on some of these leads, saw similarities, and was like, hmm, I'm going to reach out to this cook who used to work here, who's now in London. But before he was able to reach him, he discovered that the cook had left London. And just as the cook left London, the Jack the Ripper killing stopped. Just like how when he left Austin, the servant girl annihilator killing stopped. So, I mean, there's definitely more evidence than the first theory. Definitely not enough to convince me at all, but... There's not enough to convince me, but there's not enough to not convince me at the same time. Because one thing that I was thinking throughout this whole time you were describing these connections is how much it sucks that it's been so long. So there's nothing that we can find out to to solve this. Because in, in every case, the more time that passes the less likely you are to find out what happened. And, I mean, we're also looking back at something that was prior to a lot of the investigatory and, like, scientific things that we have now. And these are things we can never have. Because these connections, they're circumstantial. So they, they like, you literally have two sides. They could be like, oh, that's total bullshit. That's just like, oh, circumstantial. Like, no. Or it's like, no, that literally could fucking be what happened. Well, I mean, they had, like, apparently a bare footprint at one of the murder sites. And I'm assuming they didn't cast it, because if they did, your toe prints are just like your fingerprints. They're unique to you. And because it's the 1880s, that's like, oh, let's take pictures of this. But not going forward to, like oh, let's cast this, you know, the the fingerprints, let's see if this is identifiable. Yeah, but did they even know about prints in 1880? I honestly don't know. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think they did. Yeah. So I don't think it's even a piece of evidence they would have focused on or given any time to other than like, oh, this is a footprint with a missing toe, apparently. Yeah. Let's, I don't know, photograph it, I guess. They had, they had cameras then. But, you know, it's... If this exact uh, murder and the exact evidence happened right now, I'm sure they would be able to catch this person through fingerprints and blood and apparently a footprint. Like, it's but true. the technology wasn't there. wasn't there then. So in July of 2014, PBS aired a show, History Detectives. Um, and in this episode, it focused on the Servant Girl Annihilator. And they used a combo of historical research as well as some modern investigative techniques, including like psychological and geographic profiling, which I feel like is very useful currently looking, you know, at like past cases, stuff like, again, 130 years ago. I'm like, oh, I don't know. But they identified a suspect, Nathan Elgin who was a 19-year-old African-American cook. And Elgin worked pretty close to a lot of the crime scenes and was also missing his little toe, which, again, was similar to the footprint with the missing toe. And in February of 1886, so, you know, two months after um, the final murders, 
He was shot and killed by police while he was attempting to assault a girl with a knife. Oh. So it's it's like, to me, that's the most likely theory because it, it has the missing toe and apparently they have the footprint. It's in close proximity and he died shortly after the killing stopped and not with like a long enough break that it's like, oh no, something else happened. It's like, okay, two months there was mm-hmm. that time period between killings before. So I'm like, that that seems like maybe, but also that's such basic evidence. I mean It is. When we were in your case, the circumstantial evidence of like the Grey's Anatomy surgical textbook and the exacto knives and the creepy obsession with taxonomy and eyeballs, and the other thing they found in the house that I can't remember, and the squirrel hairs. Like Even all of that is still very circumstantial. This being like, he lived near and died shortly after and didn't have a toe. I'm like, (laughs) girl, you're not convincing anyone. No. I'm not convinced. It's not enough. No. So in the end, seven women and one man were murdered. And in addition to that, six women and two men were seriously injured but survived attacks by the servant girl annihilator. And to this day, who that person was is a mystery. And that is my case. That is the Servant Girl Annihilator. Dude, that was intense. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot more intense than I ever imagined going into it. Because, I mean, as we've talked about before, I'm not a big fan of cases from a long time ago. You know, there's there's a reason I've never done Jack the Ripper and probably won't ever, because I feel like, for me, one of the things that really draws me in in true crime cases is being able to kind of see myself there or relate to it. And pretty much cases from the 60s and on, it's like, oh yeah, I can see myself there. Once it gets earlier than that, it becomes more historical, more of something where I'm like, I literally can't picture myself there. I have no tether to what life was like or anything. And so it becomes more of like a story. This one, though, I can't pinpoint it, but there's so much of it that feels very modern. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I'm not a big fan of older cases, this one very much halfway through research pulled me in and i was like what the actual fuck y'all this shit cray oh totally i can see how and i mean let's be real if anyone does jack the ripper it's gonna be me uh true (laughs) true um wow though your case holy shit was i learned a lot Uh, so are you ready for postmortem i am as ready as i'll ever be all right let's do it So I feel like you do this all the time where we will and uh, peek into the behind the scenes. A lot of the times I'll finish my case if I go first and Tyler's like, oh my God, no, you totally won. But then I feel like you go into your case and I'm like, wait, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? This is insane. And so I will say both of our cases really fucking intense. But I think part of, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like part of what you're struggling with in yours is that it happened so long ago. But if you were to take your case, jump that 100 years in the future to 1980, 
Would you feel like it's not as intense? I feel like one of the big parts of my case that's intense is the, like, is it Jack the Ripper? I mean, yes, the murders that happened in Austin were horrifying and brutal. And yes, it was a serial killer who paralyzed a town. But my case didn't have the gruesome level of yours of, like, the eye removal and the fucked upness of all of that. But your case did have an ending. But it was unsatisfying as fuck because yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know much less about who did mine, but I think a big part of that is it being older. But there is no part of me that is fully convinced that Charles Albright did it. I mean, I I think he did. But as far as like, if I'm on a jury, did he do it? With the evidence, I don't know. I don't think I would not be able to say yes. And, I mean, in my case, none of the suspects presented would I be able to give a yes vote on a jury. Also, that's how it is. It's like, mm-hmm, thumbs up. <laughs> but, no, I, I I think your case is the more intense one. I will say what's super interesting about this episode is I feel like we are telling each other, no, yours is better. No, yours is better. Like, we're defending each other's cases, which I think is a very interesting perspective to have because while yes oh my god mine was intense the eyeball killer are you kidding me like surgical precision plus removing eyes but with yours when you talk about it not being as intense he had or he she had so many different modes of killing murder weapons it was the you know the axe or it was the knife or it was the shrap metal or the screwdriver or the whatever like there were so many different things it was almost this like whatever's available in the moment that's the murder weapon and to me that's terrifying because it's like something that's an everyday object like a screwdriver yeah it's a sharp object Mm -hmm. but it has a purpose but it can be used as a weapon it's just scary and also like The Jack the Ripper tie-in, yes, like you were saying. That definitely leads me to be like, huh, wait, this could be so much more than we think it is that I just, I don't know. I feel like this is a really difficult decision. Okay, I'm just going to call it. I'm going to use a lifeline. I'm going to call it a draw because I don't think we're going to be able to convince the other because... I'm pretty steadfast in feeling like your case won. It sounds like you're pretty steadfast in thinking my case won. I am. Which, again, this is so weird to be like, we're not defending ourselves, we're defending each other. It's hilarious in its own right, but... um, I know. Usually, yeah, usually it's very much the other way around. And I'm like, okay, but in my case... um, but I, yeah, are you are you good with calling this one a draw? Yeah, I'm totally good with that because I don't okay. agree with you and you don't agree with me. And that is what a draw yeah. is for. This is why we do a draw. This, and we haven't had one in a while. No, um, it's been a while. So what we used to do is when we have a draw, that means next episode's a survivor one, which I'm not looking forward to because... Of course, every time we do a Survivor episode, it's literally some of the most intense cases we ever do. Always. Because, again, it's the actual people who went through it being able to say it in their own words and describe it in ways that you're like, 
oh my you just put yourself there yep um but i i think episode 93 is uh gonna be survivor episode agreed let's do it mine's gonna be fucking awful i can already tell you (laughs) they they all are they just all are can we what if we did a survivor episode that was like you know still intense but the easy survivor ones you know where they're like we were in a boat that sank or like my car crashed and i survived after a day and it's like holy shit that's intense but like okay all right we won't because this is true crime but number one none of that sounded not intense i'm just gonna say because if you were i mean if you were in that moment it's intense number two like you were alluding to it's all intense there's no such uh, thing as easy when it comes to what we do and that's i mean you're right and not i don't i don't mean to discount anyone at all it's just, I feel like it's so different when it's a survival story against nature or against just, like, the odds versus when it's, like, you know, someone being like, and then I knew that if I didn't kill him, he would kill me. And you're like, oh, my God. I know. I feel like it's different. It's still intense, though. You're absolutely right. Still fucking crazy intense. But. So... Before we close out, tell me something um, like that's kind of brought you up this week. That's been like a positive thing or, or something you've enjoyed. And then I'll tell you mine. So definitely one of the best things that's happened to me this week. One of my absolute best friends. Um, we are co-workers. Her last day was um, just a couple weeks ago. But she's recently started her new job. And it is just, she's so happy, and it just fills me with so much joy. I don't even have the words to express, like, how proud I am and how happy it makes me. It just, fucking see her kill it and succeed. And I'm like, fuck yes. We're all goddamn rock stars. I love seeing people succeed. That is... One of my favorite things, and it's one of those that, like, yes, I'll admit, of course I like seeing myself succeed. Who doesn't? But seeing someone else succeed puts, like, this different level of, like, fuck yeah, you got this. Mm -hmm. I knew you could do it. It's all these different emotions that are, like, you're just so proud of someone where it's, like, I knew it. Knew you could do it. No doubt in my mind was ever there. Exactly. It just, it's a whole nother level of joy to like it's great when you succeed and stuff but seeing someone you love just succeed and kill it is a is it's a whole nother thing and i'm just like fist pumping in the background like yes bitch yeah no um so mine is definitely not as deep as that because okay I'm going to get, like, nerdy for a second, but you guys love me and you know it, and you obviously know I love Stephen King, but one of my goals oh. for... No, just shut up. Let it happen. Um, One of my goals for 2020 is to read all the books of his that I've never read, and that totals about 35, which is... It's doable. Very doable. I've read five books in the month of January, so I'm set up great. But the one I just started is Dr. Sleep. And Tyler, you know this, but The Shining, which is the first of this now two books, 
is one of my favorite books he's ever written. And it's it's a classic. And by the way, the movie, not the same as the book. Read the fucking book. But it's so good. And so I started Dr. Sleep and I was a little bit nervous because, you know, the sequel, it's always a little bit nerve wracking. Like, ooh, is it going to weigh up? Is it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm about 100 pages in. And so far, I'm like, oh, my God, I love this. Um, so that's been... Sometimes I feel like we need those little things when you come home from a really fucking rough day and you're like, you know what? All I want to do tonight is cook myself dinner and I want to sit on the couch and read a book. And that's been me this week. I need that escape. I need that. I, I'm not going to watch TV. I'm not interested in whatever's on Netflix. I don't care right now. I want to read this book. And so that's been a good escape for me this week. I mean, absolutely. I think the little things, you know, we call them little things, but they bring big joy. And they're not really that little. Yeah. Because the, one of the things that will bring me more joy than feels right is like Wendover Productions, who's one of my favorite, like, interesting facts YouTube videos or channels, has a new video. And I get to come home from work. I lay down on the couch or on my bed and get to watch it. And I'm like, yes, this is so fun. So you know what? Don't discount the little things because the joy they bring you is big. Boom. Mic drop. I I absolutely love that. That is probably honestly one of my favorite quotes. It's like, don't discount the little things because they bring you big joy. It's so, so true. You need to like quilt that on a fucking pillow. Listen, if I knew how to cross-stitch, I would, but I wouldn't cross-stitch shit like that. I would cross-stitch things like eat a dick, but in very fun, <laughs> like, gorgeous font with flowers and, like, or something that's like, this is my Coke pillow. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's tacky and it's in a fun font. You know what? Cross-stitching is theoretically not difficult. It's lots of X's. You could totally do it. I have very bad hand-eye coordination, but... Well, there you go. And with that, and if you enjoyed this episode, hop on over to Apple Podcast, leave us a review. We love reading what you guys have to say. It's so awesome to hear what you you pull out of it. And like, I don't know. It's They're so rewarding, guys. We love your reviews. So go leave us one. Absolutely. And while you're doing that, make sure to like and follow us on all of our social media channels. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I mean, honestly, follow us on Instagram. It's the most entertaining. Truth. In my opinion. Um, because that's where we post fun memes. But um, yeah, make sure to like and follow us. Um, also, follow us on any of the podcast platforms you're on, like Spotify and stuff. Do all the things. Thought I'd double plug. Double plug. Follow us. Bye. And with that... This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.